turn our attention to the summons to the word. In uh, 1966, which was not too long ago, um, Times Magazine uh, posted an article, and in the cover it said, "God is God dead? That is the question uh, that they posted in the cover of the page. Uh, and the question exposed a deep skepticism of, uh, of the time. Um, they questioned everything about God, the salvation story, what God said in his word. Uh, it was all to be doubted. And uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, burdened by his generation, wrote a, a series of books uh, that said, God is there and he is not silent. And that is our confession, that God is there and that he's not silent. He speaks to us. And the way he speaks to us today is through his word. And we acknowledge that these are not mere opinions of men, but this is the word of God that is living and active in our lives. And so as we come to the word, let us remember, uh, let us remind ourselves that these are the words of God to give life to us. And so um, we'll read the summons to the word that says, Jesus said, if you hold my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Pastor Bruce has asked me to read the scripture uh, for today's sermon, and it is in Luke 15, verses 1 through 32. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's in page 874. Luke 15, verses 1 through 32, and a pure Bible, 874. And it reads, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she found and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to, him, to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, 
and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long, far, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he said, and the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when, his, but, this, but when this your son came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the frightened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Juan. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we cry out for your spirit to be present as we have heard in the summons to your word, uh, the truth will set us free. And we indeed, we long to be free. Father, we are shackled by all manner of self-deception. Uh, we are so easily enslaved by so many voices in our culture. We are uh, regularly just taken by our, our sin as it has its way, as we give in to our desires, as we give in to our fears, as we give in to our loneliness, as we give in to our pain. Uh, Father, we give up, and so we give in. And so, Father, please, we we do indeed, especially for this passage in Luke 15, we ask that you would be present in a powerful way. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you uh, who are little, you kids, or those of you who are now grown-up kids, how many of you have ever said something like, hey, that's not fair? Well, that's something we regularly hear in the Clark household. 
right? Oh, no fair, right? There's a sense of, of, of violation of injustice. Maybe, you're, maybe your older brother or your sister gets to do something that you don't get to do, like getting to stay up late and watch a movie, or maybe it's, uh, you know, you, you have to go to bed, or maybe it's that, that they get not just one cookie for dessert, they get two, right? But you only get one. Look at that, just, just one. Ugh. Who wants even one when you can't have two, right? That's not fair. It's not fair at all. When we say those words, our kids, when we say those words, that's not fair. When we say those words, are we usually happy or are we upset? Maybe even angry. Right? We're upset, aren't we? We're upset. We're thinking, whoa, this is not fair. Now listen to this. Those of you who are little ones, this is really important. Listen to this. Jesus knows what it's like to be treated unfairly. In fact, no one was treated more unfairly than Jesus. Let me say that historically. I think it could be a very strong case could be made historically that no one in the history of humanity was treated more unfairly than Jesus. Not once in his whole life did Jesus get what he deserved. He would live his whole life, listen, listen to this, Jesus would live his whole life doing everything right, only to be treated by everyone, by his foes, by his followers, even by his own father, as if he had done everything wrong. You, kids, you know what I'm talking about? You're times, maybe, I mean, you really are trying to please your mom or dad. You're really trying to please a friend. You're trying to do the right thing, and suddenly you just get, something's just total misunderstanding, and you, you get you're treated like, you're trying to do it right, but it's, it's treated as if you did it wrong. Jesus was in every way thrown under the bus. Now think about this. Imagine going, imagine you're, you're 8, maybe 10, 12 years old, you're Jesus, and you're going to the temple with your mom and dad. You're making that, that, uh, that pilgrimage that you make three times a year to, to the temple, to Jerusalem. And one time, some, I don't know what age, it would have clicked as Jesus would have seen say a bull or an ox or a sheep placed on the altar and the fire, the, the massive um, flames consuming that fire and realizing that what? That was him. That was him. That's a picture. All the Old Testament was pointing to what his life would culminate in. Not in an amazing, not in meeting the right girl, having a great marriage and wonderful children, not in getting old and knowing the joys of seeing children and grandchildren, not in respect and the reputation from your community, nothing like that. It would all be taken from him. Jesus came into our world, listen to this, Jesus came into our world as the answer. And everyone treated him as if he were the problem. Imagine that, kids, imagine that you're like a, a doctor. 
not just any doctor, you're an emergency room doctor. You know what emergency room doctors? I mean, they're the doctors like some, some like gunshot wound or a car accident. One comes, you know, just right, right, pull up to the to the the front of the emergency room. They rush them in, and it's just this emergency trauma situation, and it's that's pretty that's pretty intense, right? Imagine being an emergency room doctor. And let's say actually that you're on your way home from a long day of work, and you're driving home. And you realize you come upon a car accident, and it's a really bad car accident, and you get out, and you realize as a doctor that you're uniquely qualified to actually offer help, help that you and you alone can give. And you run up to the car accident to see what you can do, and, 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 and you try to offer help, and there's confusion, and there's, there's all kinds of people running this way and that, and, and, and someone starts to, starts to blame you for the car accident saying that you were the one who actually caused the car accident, that you're the one who got these people hurt. And everyone starts blaming you, and you're like, I wasn't even here for the accident. It wasn't my fault. I'm trying to help. That's Jesus' life in a nutshell. Let me ask this question. Why would Jesus be so willing to be treated so unfairly? Indeed, why wasn't... Why wasn't God the Father fair with Jesus? Why did God do what he did with Jesus? Listen, this is so important, kids. If you, this, is, this is so central to everything, to all that Christianity is about. God wasn't fair with Jesus, was he? He was horribly unfair with Jesus. And the reason that he was unfair with Jesus was so that he, that is God, might never be fair with us. Think about that. As a kid, I can often remember crying out, hey, that's not fair, right? I had an older brother and an older, an older brother and older sister. My older brother was about six, seven years older than I was. And they often got to do things that I didn't. And I'd say, ah, oh, that's not fair. It's not fair. But was it fair? Actually, it was. It was very fair. They were older, <laughs> and I needed to go to bed. <laughs> I really needed to go to bed. I'm not tired. Right? Oh, honey, I think you're tired. I'm not tired. I'm never tired. <sighs> I'm not tired. Right? So why was this? If, if, if it really was fair, if my older brother's staying and watching a movie because he was older, if he got more dessert because he was bigger, if he got more, and if it really was fair, why wasn't I happy for them? Think about it, kids. Those of you who are kids, think about it. Why wouldn't I be happy? If it really was fair, why wouldn't I be happy for them? Why wouldn't I say, wow, you get to stay up and late watch and watch a movie. Good for you. That's awesome. Enjoy. Have a great time. I'll be in bed. Don't worry about me. Or, wow, you got two, two cookies. Score. Right? Give me a high five. Yeah. Why wasn't I happy for them? Because I was selfish. I was selfish, and life was all about me. It's all about me. I was just whining. I was feeling sorry for myself. Now, don't get me wrong. Were my older brother and sister, were they sometimes mean to me? Absolutely. And we don't have enough time in the sermon to tell you about all the wrong things that were done to me as a child. My old brother, he would pass me in the hallway. We, you know, we had this hallway in our house growing up. And for no good reason, right as he passed me, he would turn and he would just nail me in the shoulder. Just boom! Right? 
Or we'd be in the backseat of the car driving somewhere. I'd be sitting next to him, and I don't know, just wham! <laughs> right on my thigh. And he would make his fist to steal one of the knuckles would go a little further just to drive it. And I'd be like, oh, man, what did you do that for? Right? What did you do that for? It was so unfair. There were times when it was unfair. I'd be reduced to tears, right? So did my, did my older brother deserve to stay up late? Did he deserve to watch a movie, given all the things that he had done to me? Did he deserve all of that? No, he didn't. But did I deserve anything better? See, I had a younger brother too. I did, I had a younger brother. In fact, he was six or seven years younger than I was. And having been hit by my older brother when he passed me in the hall, knowing how much that hurts, do you know what I would do when I would pass my younger brother in the hall? I'd hit him. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly. how did you, why did you assume the worst of me? No, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. See, the thing is, often when I would cry out no fair to my mom, listen to this. She would say, Bruce, do you really want me to be fair with you? Do you really want me to give you what you actually deserve? You see, if there really is a God, do we really want him to be fair? Let me say this again. Let me say it again. If there really is a God, do you really want him to be fair with you? Do you want him to treat you as you actually deserve? What do you actually deserve? That's an incredibly important question. I'm not sure there's much, much more of a, more, a much more important question in life. Because here's the thing, gang. God was not fair with Jesus so that he might never, ever be fair or have to be fair with you and me. And you know why? This takes us to our passage. He didn't want to have to be fair with us so that we would never have to be fair with others. Do you see what I'm saying? God did not treat his own son as he deserved. God was not fair with Jesus so that he would never have to be fair with us so that we in turn would not treat others as they deserve. We would not, there would not be this tit for tat. There would not be this, well, I'm just going to be fair with you. I'm going to treat you like you deserve. See, this is exactly what Jesus was all about. He was about not treating sinners and tax collectors as they deserved. He was about not having to be fair with them. And see, Jesus' unfairness towards sinners was frustrating to some others. It wasn't just frustrating. Are you ready? It was infuriating. It was so angering to the Pharisees. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. See, Jesus would regularly hang out with what we might call the problem people. We all have problem people in our lives, don't we? The weak link. The people who don't get it the people who can't get it right, indeed the people who won't get it right, 
They enjoy sabotaging our lives. They, they, enjoy, they just don't see. Now listen to this. Understand, the Pharisees were right. They were right. These people really were problem people. It's not like Jesus is like, oh, you just get to know them. They're really good people. They really were sinners. They really were sellouts. Tax collectors on the whole were sellouts big time. Greedy corporate executives who got really big bonuses from Rome. They were difficult people. Now think about this. Imagine someone who's wronged you in your life. Think of, think of someone who's deeply wronged you in your life. And you walk into a restaurant, a nice restaurant some evening, and you see them having dinner with Jesus. And they're laughing. They're having a great time. Jesus covers the bill. And you're like, what in the world? Why isn't he addressing the issue? Why is he putting up with this? See, there's something very legitimately scandalous to all of this. Something that actually is infuriating. See, there is this sense in which we often look at this idea, oh, isn't that just no, so easy, so nice, so convenient, isn't it wonderful that Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners? And we don't grasp how unbelievably scandalous that it actually was. I can remember, uh, this is a, a beautiful story, I can remember when I was in the Air Force, I, I was working, we would often go TDY, I was working with several other um, co-workers of mine, and uh, most of the guys actually were civil service, they were not um, active duty military like I was, and so I was in my early 20s, early mid-20s, and a lot of these guys were, I don't know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they were, um, again, they were a civil service working for the Air Force, and uh, we were um, out one day, out of visiting, uh, a, a contractor, uh, it's probably like someone, like a Boeing or or Lockheed Martin, and we, we had just come, we just landed, we just got into the hotel, and we were the hotel had a happy hour, and we stopped with a friend for a drink, and we were talking about just whatever, and I don't remember how the topic came up, but one of the guys' name was Lou, and Lou was just a phenomenally smart guy. He was a, in fact, he was a jet propulsion engineer. And, uh, and Lou grew up in the, in the, nor in, the uh, in New England area, like in Boston or someplace like that, a strong Catholic background. And he said, I grew up, he said, I, said, I grew up Catholic. And he said, I never really read the Bible, had the Bible read to me, but when I was out of high school, I realized, you know, I'm actually going to sit down and read this thing. And he said, I did. I sat down and I read the Old Testament. And I got about a third of the way through and I realized, I stopped and I said, I just, I was shocked. He said, I, just, he said, I was shocked by what I read. He said, most all of the supposed good guys in the story, he says, they were all jerks. They were all jerks who couldn't get it together. He felt like all the wrong people were the good guys. And he said, I was like, what in the world? And he said, that's when I knew. I closed my Bible and I thought, I'm done with this done with this thing called Christianity because all the wrong people are the heroes. How unfair. How strange. And see, Jesus, this is what's so important. See, this guy, in one way, my coworker, in a way, he really got the Bible, didn't he? 
He understood how scandalous it was that the story of the Old Testament was a story of a God who would set his steadfast love on a bunch of stubborn people, a bunch of stiff-necked people. And we can either say, hey, that's not fair, and walk away, or we can say, hey, that's not fair. Isn't it great? (laughs) Isn't it wonderful? And it all depends on whether or not we think that God should be fair with us. See, what, what Jesus goes on in response to the Pharisees grumbling, and understand, they're grumbling, it's just kind of like blah, 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 blah. The Greek word there, it's used for the, for the, the Pharisees grumbling, it's, it's like this quasi-legal complaint. It's saying, Jesus, you're being reckless, you are being unfair in a very important covenantal way. You don't get how God works. You're playing fast and loose, and you're not, you're not understanding that these people, these people are people who are messing it up for the rest of us. They are the weak link. They're not understanding the importance of faithfulness. They're not understanding the importance of purity. They are playing fast and loose, and you're encouraging it. And so Jesus, in response, tells three stories that, in fact, are one story. In fact, in a sense, they are all true stories. How is this possible? They're parables. Because, listen to this, Jesus is telling the story of Israel. See, the first story is a story about a sheep. And of course, what were in, God, in, in the Old Testament, what were God's people often called? What's our favorite psalm? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's David speaking about himself in a pretty non-complimentary sort of way. (laughs) If if God's my shepherd, I must be his sheep. In fact, regularly, God's people are known as sheep in the Old Testament. And they're not the sheep, but they're actually often lost sheep. In fact, the Psalm 119 ends in that precise way. He says, it's a supplication, something like, help me, O Lord, for I am a lost sheep. So in telling the story, Jesus is actually telling the story of Israel. Look at the second story. The story is about a a coin, a coin that again is lost. And this coin is a treasured possession. And Israel, regularly in the Old Testament, was called a treasured possession. And of course, the final story is about what? A son. And Jesus, excuse me, and in Israel in the Old Testament was known as what? As God's son, as a son. Israel is my firstborn son. There's this notion of sonship and God being, and the people of Israel being God's children, God's sons. And there are two key ideas that are are in each of these three stories. We don't need to spend a lot of time. There are two key ideas that are so subversive. subversive. The first one is the idea of loss. The idea of loss. And we see that in verse 4, verses 8, verses 32, that each time there's there's this parable and there's this idea of lostness. That a shepherd has a hundred sheep, and what? He loses one of them. There's a woman with coins, and she loses one of them. In the very end of the story of the prodigal son, there's a story of where, where, where the father says to the son, you're, you, you, he says, your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He, he was lost, and now he's found. And I'll tell you why that's such a subversive and difficult and infuriating metaphor. You know why? 
Because Jesus is pointing to these rebellious, weak links who refuse to play ball, who refuse to get it right, and he's not saying, you know, they're rebels. He's not saying they're defiant. They're sinners. What's he calling them? He's saying they're lost. They're lost. He's telling his Pharisees to see them through a paradigm of loss. Don't you see these sinners? They're actually Israelites. They're Israelites. And God the Father, has, they have something of dignity and value and worth. They belong to him and he's lost them. And he wants them back. He wants them back. And so he has sent me, says Jesus, to reclaim them. Are you on board? Or are you getting in the way? See, you have problem people in your life, don't you? See, I think everyone else is a problem person. It's not a great thing as a pastor, right? My wife's the problem, my kids are the problem, all of you are the problem. You're all problems. I'm fine. You know, I often think that, and I tell you, it's horrible. I, I start as a minister, I start getting irritated, frustrated. Why don't they get it right? Why, if, it weren't for this, if it weren't for my wife, this marriage would be great. <laughs> and that says everything about me, not Sarah, right? Amen. Everyone and all of God's people said, Amen. Okay? If it weren't for these kids, this family would be great. If it weren't for this congregation, this church would be amazing. Right? You see? Do you see? And, and yes, are there problems? Are there real, entrenched, deep problems with your spouse? With your children? With brothers and sisters in the Lord? With your neighbors and coworkers? Yes, they are problem people. The question is, are you as well? See, this was, these were the stories of God's people, the story of Israel. Israel was a lost sheep. It was a lost coin. It was a lost son. And the Pharisees had lost sight of that. See, they wanted these sinners to be treated as they deserved. Doesn't Jesus understand what he needs to do? He needs to address the issue. He needs to come down. He needs to come, needs to come down hard. We need to have repentance. We need purity. We need obedience, and, and we do, and we do. But they had lost sight. They had forgotten that God had never treated Israel as she deserved, that God had never treated them as they deserve. And how could it be that God would never treat, that he would never treat Israel as she deserved? How could it be that he would never do that? Because he would never treat his son as he deserved. So the first key idea is the idea of loss. But the second key idea is the idea of joy. You see, this is a beautiful theme that whenever the sheep, when the sheep finds the shepherd, he puts, it, he puts the sheep on his shoulders 
and with joy returns and calls others to enter into that joy. The same with a woman who finds her coin. She, she's overjoyed and she calls others to share in her joy. And it's the same with the story of the prodigal son, where you have a father who's overcome with joy. Overcome with joy. At the, at the return of his son, they're celebrating, they've killed the fatted calf. And everyone is filled with joy except the older brother who says, Dad, that's not fair. It's not fair. And when the father responds to his son, all that I have is yours. You've always been with me. You've always been with me. But your son has come home. He was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. When the father says this, how does the son respond? Do you see it there in the story? How does the son respond? When the, when the father says, don't you see, this son of mine was, lost, was dead, but now he's alive. He was, he, was found, he was lost, and now he's found. How does the son respond in the story? We don't know, do we? Why does Jesus end the story there? He looks at the Pharisees and he's waiting for them to finish the story. So do you see how unfair Jesus is? See this, this, this idea of unfairness? It's got a name. What does unfairness call? What does it God when what does it call when God doesn't treat us as we deserve? It's called grace. It's called grace. Yeah, it's just a this scandalous idea that God isn't gonna treat us as we deserve. And how can he do that? Because he didn't treat his own son as he deserved. And why did he do it? So that we might never treat others as they deserve. We may not demand that they get their just desserts. Well, he had it coming. Jesus' life was about making sure people didn't get what they deserved. And the Pharisees didn't understand that, and so often I don't. And let me ask you again, the problem people in your life, will you continue to see them as obstacles? Will you continue to judge them Will you continue to wash your hands of them? Will you continue to let them know how disappointing they are to you? Or will you see them not as obstacles, but as opportunities? Will you see, the, will you see them as invitations from a God who hasn't treated you fairly to get on board his plan of rescue? See, so remember what I said when I was a child? I said, I was cried out how unfair it was. And you know why it wasn't fair? Because frankly, I didn't care about my brothers and sisters. I didn't really care about them. I didn't want what was best for them. When I saw my mom and dad blessing them, giving them good gifts, I wasn't excited for them. I didn't want that for them because I didn't care about them. The question is, when you see the problem people in your life, what do you want for them? What do you want? 
See, this is the cost. This is the challenge of grace. It calls us to, to, calls us to look at the problem people in our lives and to launch a love offensive. To think as shrewdly, as slyly as we can to love. Oh, what it would be like to have a church, even a church, this small little community, to have a church that understands that when people wrong us, that's the perfect opportunity <laughs> to get them back with love. That when our enemy is hungry, we feed them. That when they're thirsty, we give them a drink. That when the problem people in our lives fail most, we say, okay, it's not about me. It's about God and what he's doing in their life. And I need to get help from my small group. I need to get help from, from others, a brother or sister in the Lord, to step back, not make this about me, and, and prayerfully, shrewdly engage on how to love them in entirely unexpected ways, ways that they'll never see coming. That's to live a life of grace. Let me conclude with this story. I was, uh, when Sarah and I were living in Puerto Rico, uh, serving in a church there, um, we ran into a, a woman who, a woman started coming, she had three children, and uh, this woman's uh, husband, I can honestly say, was one of the most difficult people I've ever met. Um, he had at one time uh, uh, professed faith in Jesus. He'd actually served a full time in a church, coming on staff there. He was, um, he was involved in youth ministry. And during that time, he was seriously uh, burned by church leaders. He was thrown under the bus. He had a horrible experience. He more or less left the church. He left Christianity. He had a tiny sense, a tiny little sliver of sense of maybe that there was a God. And when I met him, he's a very successful entrepreneur and very, very uh, crude, uh, very angry, very always ready to get his opinion out there, always ready to shut people down. He loved to make people feel awkward. He had an opinion about everything politics, you name it. He would had his own YouTube site and he would have all these, these angry videos where he would rant about how, how what messed up everything is and the political situation, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and I would actually meet with him quite regularly. Every, every two weeks or so, he'd have to get together for lunch. And we'd have a time together where I was often very, um, very you know, I was, I'd be very gracious, but I'd also be very frank with him. And he would express anger, and I would often sympathize. I mean, he, had, he did. He got thrown in the bus by a church. I would, sympath, I would empathize, but I would also listen to this. I'd also point out how his anger owned him and how only God's anger was sufficient and that he could rest in God's wrath, a wrath that was poured out on Jesus, a wrath that would be poured out at Jesus' return, that there was a God who saw and who knew all that he, he, had, he had been through. And he listened he never really seemed to accept it. He usually pushed back with, exception, with objection upon objection. And, you know, it was just, and we, we left. And we left, we left um, you know, we originally left Puerto Rico. We came here, and, uh, and I thought that was it. Oh, well, it's just whatever. You mend some and you lose some. And it was this past February, this past February, that he texted me out of the blue. And he wanted to talk. 
This is what the text said. Bruce, I thank you that you were trying to reach out to me in Puerto Rico. It's been of some comfort to me to know today that God had sent you to remind me that he hadn't forgotten me. I didn't realize it then, but I realize it now. And he went on to talk about how his wife was divorcing him, and he knew that it was his fault, and his world was crashing down, and he wanted help. He wanted help. See, there are people in your life who are so difficult, so difficult, and you think there's no hope for them, there's no possibility that they will ever change. And this passage calls us to extend a love, a scandalous grace, to not treat them as they deserve. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful is your love for us expressed in this meal. Father, we think of the Pharisees, and yet we know Pharisees can change because we know that there was a one who came from among them named Paul, and he would indeed just be overwhelmed by the grace shown to him. He would be overwhelmed by the fact of a cross, of an innocent one on a cross, receiving what he did not deserve so that he would never receive from you what he truly did indeed deserve. Oh, Father, that is all of us this morning. And I pray that you would renew in us a deep sense of the unfairness of the gospel, of all that Jesus went through for us in the name of love, so that we would follow him into costly sacrifice and be willing, just as he was willing, to not be treated as we deserve, willing to go into pain, willing to go into hardship, willing to go into misunderstanding, because that's what he did for us. Oh, Father, please embolden us, strengthen us. We are weak. We are foolish. But, Father, give us eyes to see the possibility of loving others who are so incredibly difficult. Father, teach us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Father, please, and as we go, as we turn to this meal, this meal of your making, Father, we know that it is a meal that reveals that you have made us for yourself. That when we had fallen into sin and temptation and struggle, when we had become subject to evil and death as a, as a, as a humanity, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, in order to reconcile us to you. Father, on the cross, he stretched out his arms and offered himself in full obedience to your will as a perfect sacrifice for the world. Father, it is his death that we now proclaim, and it is in his glorious name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you have your bulletin,